Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. For the New Books Network, this is New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Keith Simmons. Known as the Marvelous City, the Brazilian city of Rio de Janeiro is a Latin American metropolis that has fascinated for centuries. From soldiers to slaves and from dancers to musicians, millions have made Rio their home. Dr. Daryl Williams an associate professor of history from the University of Maryland, is one of the editors for the Rio de Janeiro Reader, History, Culture, Politics, which was recently published by Duke University Press. Dr. Williams joins us now to discuss the book. Dr. Williams, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Keith. I wonder if we could first start the interview uh, by perhaps uh, talking a little bit about your background, um, how you came to study history, and in particular, how you came to study uh, the history of of Brazil. Okay, thank you. Uh, Thank you again for this opportunity to uh, talk a little bit about uh, myself, but also about my work in Brazil, and particularly uh, most uh, recently in, in Rio, and those Things are intertwined together uh, in interesting, uh, but you know, uh, unplanned ways. Uh, sometimes people ask me if I am Brazilian or if I'm, my family's Brazilian or some sort of personal connection that I have uh, in my childhood to Brazil, and that really there's the answer is none. Uh, I um, I was born in the United States. Both of my parents are are American, and um, and I didn't really have a connection to Brazil at all. What I did have uh, growing up uh, mainly on the border uh, between uh, the United States and Mexico was an interest and a sensibility to other peoples who are close to the United States but also different in some ways from uh, the United States and and, uh, North Americans or Americans. Uh, And uh, that was particularly true for Mexicans, Mexico and Mexicans, which were quite close to uh, where I grew up, and uh, Mexico is a real place where uh, I went, at least in the border towns of Mexico. Uh, and it was also in the 1980s, so uh, some sense about um, Central America, uh, U.S. intervention in Central America, and some you know early stages of understanding of U.S. foreign policy and some issues about justice, social justice. And uh, between those two and um, an interest just to want to know more about the world, uh, I was very interested in studying uh, Latin American studies, uh, and uh, so that started out in high school in a very conventional way of taking Spanish classes, uh, but as I um, set my sights on college, I really wanted to do a Latin American studies, and so I, in part, chose programs uh, that were strong in Latin American studies, and so my undergraduate degree is in history, was in history, but with a strong Latin American studies component, um, and particularly at Princeton, with Latin American studies being such an interdisciplinary um, uh, uh, program, uh, certificate program, I really had the opportunity to do history and literature and uh, uh, political science and uh, I can't remember everything now, economics uh, in various ways. And um, But by somewhat by serendipitous chance, I suppose, 
uh, I had the opportunity to learn Portuguese, to study Portuguese between my sophomore and junior year. And with the basis I already had in understanding or trying to understand uh, about Latin America, uh, the Portuguese language, and particularly Brazilian Portuguese, uh, and that particular sort of language acquisition opportunity I had over the summer was just phenomenal. And I got really, really interested in Brazil as a place um, that seemed just fascinating and troubling and dramatic, um, and uh, a place where I could think about doing some work um, on my senior thesis, which uh, began my work on the Vargas period, um, this period in the 1930s and 40s, uh, in, on the 50s in, in Brazil. And it was through that beginning of, as an undergraduate, my senior thesis was on the coup uh, in 1945, a coup which uh, overthrows Getulio Vargas, that I became what um, it's now called the Brazil, was even then, but now I, now I would recognize myself as a Brazilianist, um, a North American who was trained academically um, to study Brazil and write about Brazil, um, interpret Brazil, both for English language North American audiences and students in particular and, and scholars, but also to bridge um, understanding and scholarship between Brazil, you know, the United States and Brazil and other places in the world as well. And it's through that kind of um, early formation as a, as a student uh, uh, in gr graduate school and then eventually as a faculty member that I became a historian of Brazil, but I'm more broadly I would call myself, uh, and I still embrace an identity which can be troubling sometimes as a Brazilianist. And uh, through that, I, um, my early research was on Vargas period, mainly 20th century, um, 30s, 40s in particular, uh, and I had some opportunities as a Fulbright scholar and later um, uh, as a Ford scholar to do, uh, to live in Brazil and to live in Rio in particular to do uh, field research and publish some of that on my first book. And then from there to do a range of other things, mainly a 20th century Brazilian history, uh, but um, much of that work was done in Rio, not necessarily early on about Rio, but in Rio. And in that process, I really became quite fascinated by the city and very committed to the city and um, a very personal uh, sort of emotive connection that I have to this city. and. Uh, as a place and experiences that I've had there. And that um, led me to um, the, this opportunity that I have more, had more recently to work on the Rio de Janeiro Reader, uh, which is a work of history, but it's also a kind of a broad-based, uh, multidisciplinary, multi-perspective uh, attempt to capture and interpret and fracture uh, our understandings about um, about Rio de Janeiro, this marvelous, wonderful, terribly distressing place and city, and um, it's 500 years of um, marveling and distressing people as well. So that's the kind of short way of saying um, my path has been both academic but also personal as well. And I think that you and your fellow editors have put together a really fascinating uh, collection of documents relating to Brazil. Um, in the introduction, uh, it's mentioned that the book will explore Rio uh, in a variety of documents, uh, from police investigations to Facebook pages. Uh, I wonder if you could just t uh, talk for a couple moments about um, how you decided on uh, the 
types of documents that you were going to use uh, and perhaps some of the challenges uh, relating to curating those documents? Sure. That's an excellent question. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it was very much part of the process. This final product is a both function of uh, ideas and ideals about what we wanted to do and then the practicalities of how to find that in a document or, or a, t a text, whatever, uh, a source uh, that was accessible, that was intelligible, translatable, and that we could, we could secure the rights uh, to republish. So um, given that the three co-editors were all historians, we were all began with a kind of basic familiarity with uh, archival manuscript documents in various ways, so original uh, documents, whether they were in handwritten or typed form or electronic form. Uh, and so that, you know, informed, obviously, there was an archival basis to this. And so different archives that each of us uh, had worked at, at in uh, in our various research uh, histories um, became a big foundation for this, and both the archives themselves and then the kind of research that each of us did uh, and the periodization both Amy and I um, have, had worked in the 20th century, um, uh, both Amy and I now work in the 19th century. Paulo's, uh, for some of his research, has been in the colonial period, um, and so, you know, we had both a combination of the uh, kind of chronological periodization kinds of interest and then this archival component. But with that, then we knew we had to expand out to look at other kinds of sources. So, you know, that included, you know, looking at things, material objects and museum things that are uh, visual materials and um, some based on our familiarity, some based on doing, you know, research, discovering, reading and internet searches and instruments, um, no uh, archive, archival or manuscript or bibliographic instruments that would point us in uh, directions, and um, so that you know that became you know part of this big discovery process in which we had a big list. I don't remember how many um, items were on it, but a lot, and then we began to winnow those down and make some choices based on chronological coverage, based on document type, based on voice. Um, Certainly, we wanted to have representations of men and women, Brazilians and non-Brazilians, uh, Afro-Brazilian, Afro-Cariocas, and uh, non-Afro-Cariocas, um, things related to public planning, uh, things related to the everyday, uh, crime, criminality, but from multiple perspectives, both from the perspective of the policing state and also those who are policed or, or, or you know, objects of police interest. Um, and so th those were each um, different items that ultimately led to some choices about where to go. Uh, and then, then from there, it became a process really of negotiating among ourselves and with the press um, about balance and about trans translation, both, you know, who would do it if it was translated, who would, if it's not, who would do a translation if it wasn't in English, but also how, how, how things could be translatable, you know, how, how could they be conveyed, whether the document was very short or um, longer, uh, how could we could uh, present it in a way that offered some um, coherence, um, some accessibility for the reader as well. And some of that also came to, you know, questions about making sure we capture con contemporary um, or current, at least recent, uh, Brazil and the new ways of expression. Uh, and that included something like Facebook pages. Um, 
uh, as well. Obviously, a relatively new type of source. And developing new kinds of relationships, too. So we found some Facebook pages from the Hedge Damare, but uh, you know, I didn't have any connections there. But through our research assistants, and we made some connections and sort of asked if they would be interested and willing to um, have some of their materials translated and appeared, and sort of that kind of development of relationships as well um, to to do that. Uh, and then, you know, I would say a good, again, good portion of what took place near the end of the process was getting the rights. You know, some things were in public domain, some things weren't. Some things had to do with Brazilian law, others with the international law, depending on the author, the author's nationality, the time in which it was appeared. Um, and uh, that took up a lot of you know, uh, time, oxygen, <laughs> to make sure that each document ultimately was um, either in the public domain or was ceded to us to translate and um, publish, uh, or that we paid it, uh, paid a fee for that. And that was certainly the case for music. But maybe I should add, you know, there's some things in there which, you know, seemed so obvious to us, like the, the lyrics from The Girl from Ipanema. I mean, it just was so obvious that we would have that in there. But actually, it's not um, because securing the rights was just impossible. We tried, and the cost would have been exorbitant. Um, and so we had to not do that. But the irony, of course, is that many of the things, such as the girl from Ipanema, that are so familiar to international Brazilian and international audiences about Rio, and are readily available through any Google search. Um, um, so it's not that these are actually protected, or, but you know we couldn't secure the rights to actually print them in this particular document, so they don't appear. But those are some things that are you know that were lost. But we had other great um, things from newspapers and other other individuals that were extremely um, helpful and and willing really to uh, offer um, materials to us to publish at no cost or very low, moderate, you know, um, uh, just a nominal cost. Um, so, uh, Claudio Fajeda's uh, photography, for instance, which is fantastic. Um, uh, so, um, it's kind of a, a range of relationships and, and um, laws and, and, and uh, balances of interest, balances of goals. And I think uh, what's really fascinating is that when you're discussing all of the, the challenges uh, that went into uh, creating this volume, um, you and the editors and, and the authors and the translators were able to cover um, an impressive amount of history. I mean, to do 450 years um, is is quite incredible. Uh, and so I without wonder... footnotes, the irony of of course is we had to do it without footnotes. <laughs> Oh, and that's that's very true as well. Um, and um, that actually uh, that kind of leads a little bit into another question that I have, um, which is, what do you uh, see as the benefit uh, for someone to um, use a reader uh, when you know things like the Olympics and and current events in Brazil are going on, and someone wants to learn more about the country or about Rio? Uh, what benefit is there to um, sometimes using a reader for primary source documents as opposed to a more traditional uh, historical monograph? Sure. So uh, one of the big benefits is, is just the multiplicity of voices. 
certainly you have in this, and I think it is important to stress that this is a, you know, you use the word curated or that, you know, there is a strong uh, uh, selection uh, uh, and there's a voice from uh, the co-editors here. Uh, that voice appears in the selection, even though they, that doesn't necessarily as obvious to a reader, but certainly you see that in the, in the introductory essay, in the essays which introduce each of the four major sections, and each document itself has a, has a 400-ish uh, word um, <clears throat> introduction that is, you know, both factual but also is leading uh, a reader to a certain kind of vision, a certain kind of set of questions uh, to be asked of the document. But with that, all that, and there's an uh, attempt to create some cohesion and coherency there, some, some uh, unified voice written by three people, synthesized, there are all these documents in there which are written from people at very different times and different, very different social positions and uh, different relationships to the city. And so I think one of the advantages is, is you see the multiplicity. You, there's no way you can say Rio is or Cariocas are in a unified way by taking the reader. You can certainly say that uh, Cariocas, you know, uh, are, are um, the history of Rio is a, is a, is a history of um, overcoming the physical obstacles of the city. Uh, creating a creating this uh, modern uh, modern um, uh, modern city in the in a, in a tropical environment, and you know you can find that there, but you can also find all the ways in which that uh, has not been the case. How there are other ways to approach the city, how the tropics and the uh, tropical environment, the natural environment, has continued to be um, something in which is in opposition to the modern city, or is it a tension uh, as well? These aren't unified. And you hear that in, from different uh, different voices. Certainly, when we think about that kind of uh, arguments that Cariocas are Brazilians, but especially Cariocas are, are sociable and they're friendly, and they're, but yet you find all kinds of evidence from different ways in which incredible amount of ongoing social tension, hostility, violence. And I think the reader provides not just um, an argument about that, but evidence. Uh, but evidence, again, from different perspectives so that a, a reader, as in the person reading the book, reading the reader, as it were, uh, has um, an ability to also come to their own narratives and to be able to choose or thread um, several documents together um, to create a narrative or a, a, an approach or an understanding uh, that would be different than if this was a single authored monograph that told a certain story uh, from a certain perspective, uh, certainly in which the sources are opaque or even hidden or embedded only in footnotes, and that uh, the um, reader would not have access to the original materials to come both to some understanding, hopefully in agreement with what the what the author has, but also maybe their own opinions, um, other um, concerns or questions. So I think that this is a, what a reader can do uh, in an accessible way. Certainly it does a lot, takes out a lot of the work, or it, it, it makes more accessible um, primary sources, for instance, which often are hidden in archives and they're, they're difficult access and maybe difficult to um, understand in their own terms. You know, 18th century document looks weird and hard to read. Um, but when it's, you know, when it's transcribed and translated and printed and introduced, uh, one can still get a touch and a sensibility for the flavor and the problems of the 18th century, but also in a 21st century um, uh, 
um, in a 21st century package or a 21st century vehicle. And I think that's an important um, uh, tool, uh, the uh, opportunity for a range of readers, you know, certainly uh, university students, but also the educated traveler, the uh, the interested person who's um, you know has an interest in Rio or has some. I think they have an interest in Rio, but they're not quite sure what to do with it. They want something more than a travel guide. They want something different than something only that's going to be part of you know everyday journalism. Um, and maybe they, you know they want something to go alongside the novels that they read or or. Um, you know that everyday experiences that they that they observe. You know how to give, give them some tools to be able to to understand, navigate those, make some sense of those. And when you were discussing um, that component of of a reader, uh, and that there are certain themes um, that seem to stand out. You know, like the environment and politics and music. Um, were there any of these themes that seemed to be very prominent um, as you and, and the editors and, and writers were doing your research, uh, and perhaps to the point where you might have to balance it uh, with other elements to give a more well-rounded look at the city? Sure, absolutely. I mean, this is a, the the original idea was that, um, and kind of an idea that this would be done uh, this as, a, as an electronic, kind of an enhanced electronic book would be something called what I called itineraries. So we would choose there are ten itineraries. So Black Rio, uh, City of we usually have the City of. So it was like City of Sex, City of Waters, uh, City of Fakes, uh, City of Politics. Um, I can't remember all the ones. Uh, city of Violence. And so these different themes, and there'd be City of, and in each of these themes or threads or itineraries, um, I always like this um, metaphor of the itinerary, uh, one would select a number of documents of that theme. And sometimes it, that one document could be more than for more than one theme. You know, it could be both something about violence and about uh, blackness, for instance. Uh, but one would be able to do that and thread those. And so part of the idea was the choice about what our 10, I think it was 10 this time. There was a lot of work to try to figure those out. Now, in reality, um, we chose an organization that is chronological uh, in, 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 um, in the presentation there and with some big chronological uh, periods. But um, it's still, there still is this uh, was kind of underlying um, about these kind of big um, threads that I, that I mentioned there. And it came to sometimes making some choices and trade-offs to make sure that those threads were represented. Um, so certainly we had, you know, obviously uh, a concern that we wanted to express the multiplicity of gendered voices. And so this was, you know, sometimes a challenge for um, for his, especially the historical record, which, you know, suppressed, uh, oppressed uh, the voices and experiences of women. So we had to make some you know, some concerted efforts sometimes to figure out if we can't, I couldn't always find a document that would be suitable uh, written by a woman, at least one written about women or the women at play into it. And so there were some um, components to uh, about that. But, you know, when we think about blackness, for instance, we also uh, wanted to be clear that blackness was not this uniform um, social experience uh, that all 
Afro-Cariocas were, were the same. And so making some selections, which actually showed some, some hostilities, there's that, that document there about the, um, uh, about the, um, about the capoeiras, uh, in which these, uh, this African is, you know, beat up by these other, uh, one's an African, one's Brazilian born black. So, you know, there's this, uh, seems to be this hostility between African born Africans, uh, and Brazilian born, uh, blacks, people of African descent. And so that was, you know, a choice to be made also about how to create some subtle texture and even dealing with things like, um, you know, the most stereotypical uh, seductive ideas about, you know, tropical Brazil and a city of sexuality and about, about the, you know, the mulatta, the light-skinned woman is a samba dancer in the sambodromo. Uh, certainly we knew that, you know, that's, that's part of Rio. That's part of the image, um, the international image, but it's part of the internal image of, of Rio for cariocas, not just for external. Um, but, you know, rather than just go with something kind of tried and true, uh, you know, we chose a, a, an, a, a Ministry of Health, uh, HIV prevention, carnival, uh, you know, use a condom uh, 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 campaign in which it, there was this, there's this woman, you know, she's quite attractive, mulatto woman, you know, and she's in this carnival costume, but her costume's all made out of condoms. You know, it's and it's fantastic. You know, it appeals to what you know the kind of stereotypical images, but it does so in a uh, in a black woman's uh, uh, light-skinned woman of color's uh, sexuality in carnival in particular. But it does so in a very different way, um, both by you know, public health, but also she has control over public health because she's wearing these condoms and she's going to use them. And her, her thing is, you know, if you don't have a condom, nothing's going to happen. It's basically what it says in in. Um, in Portuguese. So this was fun, you know, um, but it was part of making some conscious choices too about how to represent uh, voices um, and how to um, show variety, uh, how to capture variety uh, for uh, a city which is uh, a varied city. And I think um, diving a little bit more into uh, the sources that you curated for this marvelous city, um, I wonder if there's perhaps a specific type of source which um, proved to be interesting to curate, like government documents or um, song lyrics, or uh, if there is perhaps um, an interesting story about how uh, some of these sources might have been um, discovered. Song lyrics, I think, song lyrics, poetry, anything that was very creative. I mean, those are very, I think, difficult. Uh, that um, Chacao, uh, you know, the, uh, the Varanda Lata, um, Alata is, is a Chacao poem, uh, which then it becomes the lyrics with Fernando Abreu about the summer of um, these cans of marijuana that wash up on the beach. That was tough, you know. Um, it's it's song lyrics, um, but they're you know it's it's very much in a slang. Um, but there's all this work going on about both to try to describe this historical moment, but also about drug culture and uh, you know rebelliousness of drugs. But then it's also mapping out the city and uh, makes so makes these references to these various places in the city that um, some of which I recognize right away, but. Um, San Sebastián was a cruzada, not like cruzada San Sebastián. There was a reference there. I, I had no idea what it was, and you know, so that took some time. But I think more more broadly, 
anything of that really poetic um, register, so song lyrics and poem poetry, uh, were hard to translate. Um, and one of the choices was made for those particular kinds of documents is to leave them, leave the original alongside the translation to show, to be really tipping off to the reader that, yeah, translation is a, is a active, it's another creative act or it's an act of betrayal. <laughs> we want to be, uh, you know, somewhat upfront about, uh, about, um, about that. Um, some fun things that were um, fun uh, to discover. So, I, you know, I will give you one anecdote. So there's late in the reader, there's a um, chapter about Manguinhos, uh, the Biblioteca Parque Manguinhos. Manguinhos is a, that's a neighborhood, uh, northern zone of Rio, you know, industrial, uh, working class, lower middle class, it's a lot of favelas there as well. It's hard, uh, you know, it's hard life uh, kind of neighborhood, certainly not part of attractive, marvelous, spectacular Rio. And in um, this new relationship between um, public services and particularly libraries and communities, um, the city had built this new kind of library, this library park. And so, you know, we, ha we found the document from the um, written, you know, it's kind of a mission statement from the director, I think. And, you know, it's a very public official in a kind of liberal reformist way describing what this um, this Biblioteca Park's mission was, is, uh, where the origins and how it's, you know, it's real relationship between library users, the library itself, the community. Interesting, great, you know, uh, important. Um, but then the library also um, did, you know, it was a functioning library and they had this, um, they have, continue, have this online journal called Sector Shis, in which they have various, you know, people, users of the library who can make contributions, writing, original you know, creative writing, uh, photography. Um, and there was an interview with this guy, Alex Araujo. You know, I, I don't know, uh, really, I've met or I've corresponded with Alex indirectly on email, but I've never met him. Um, but there's this interview with him, and he's an aspiring writer, and he... Um, the locksmith. He had a kind of failed locksmith business. He's aspiring writer. He wants to be a writer, and so it was fun though because you know the, the, the interviewer from the from the library was asking him, you know, what inspires you, and and so one of the things he said he was a, he said he's an escritor pesado. I think I think that's what his phrase is in Portuguese. So kind of a heavy. Uh, he's a heavy writer, and. Um, you know, they, and he said, well, first of all, I say this is because I'm kind of heavy, overweight, so I assume he's overweight. So I thought it was kind of a nice, funny, sort of self-deprecating. But he says he's also from, he's also grew up in this neighborhood, it's Baja Pesada, which is, a, you know, a sort of slang term for, you know, rough, um, he, you know, heavy uh, violence. So he's making this reference to the violence in Manguinhos. So it's like, okay, so he goes from, from one level from talking about his own weight, using the same kind of core word, pesado, pesada, to about the kind of the heaviness of his of his neighborhood. But then he says he was also inspired by these by these um, movies, these popular culture references. So Chira da Pesada, uh, which was Chira da Pesada, which uh, I didn't know what it was, but it turned out to be the the um, the Beverly Hills Cop, uh, but the Portuguese uh, name of it, uh, title of it. And then the other one was the Bernie Mac show, which I can't remember now the name of it in Portuguese, but it's Pesada. So, you know, to me, it was just fun. 
like, here's this guy, he's a locksmith, apparently he's overweight, he was in a, he had a failed business, but he wants to be a writer, he lives in this hard neighborhood, he's being interviewed for this this magazine uh, by this, you know, this new kind of form of, uh, of a library, and he's also talking about what he what he watches, you know, on his DVDs, which have probably been pirated, uh, of um, everything, <laughs> and, and uh, Bernie Mac. And I just thought that was great, fun. I mean, an everyday kind of person, but uh, showing also this kind of everyday experience, but also this playfulness uh, of both the world around him, but also how he's describing that and his playfulness with language. And I thought that was um, a great way. And it reminded me like many times when I'm with my Carioca friends and, you know, they make all kinds of jokes and word plays. And I think that's funny uh, and fun. And uh, uh, that was uh, an unexpected find um, about, you know, the, a uh, guy, I, I, to be honest, I don't know if he's been successful at being an author or not, but um, he's trying. <laughs> and there's a lot of people who are trying to do all kinds of things, and whether they're successful or not, about exactly. They are part of the the, the, the experience. So they're part their cariocas, and they're part of that, that, that you know, uh, to be a carioca, and part is to want to be something. Um, and so here's one person who's trying to be something. So you know that would be uh, a great um, example of something that I found, uh, which is very different than any of the kind of research that I do, or uh, the kind, for the most part the places that I that I that I frequent. I you know have not I, I've been to Mangingos just once, but it's not a neighborhood that I know well. Uh, so, and I think that's sort of a perfect uh, segue to um, talk about. A couple of current events going on in Brazil. Um, I think uh, we certainly couldn't uh, do an interview like this without discussing um, contemporary events and especially the way in which uh, Rio might influence um, some of those events. Uh, the first one that I'd like to talk about um, is relating to the Olympics. Uh, it's coming up in a couple of months, and uh, there have been uh, a number of stories um, that have come out about how um, the government has spent um, you know, more money on the Olympics than they have on social services. And, you know, there's a lot of people who have become, I think, disaffected uh, by that. So I wonder if you could just perhaps tell us a little bit about um, the role that Rio has played uh, in terms of some of the uh, unrest relating to the Olympics, and um, if you could perhaps give a prediction as to whether or not um, Brazil will be able to pull off uh, the Olympics uh, in a couple of months. You know, that's the question that every single uh, Brazilian asks themselves and commentators about Brazil. So uh, I would say yes, the Olympics will happen, and I think they'll probably be pretty successful. Uh, the majority of the venues are complete. Uh, the though the transportation uh, to getting to and from those venues is you know not quite complete. I was just in Rio last week, like a week and a half ago. Uh, they're trying. You know, people the, the the games will take place, and they probably would be fairly successful as games events in and of themselves. And uh, certainly for a television international spectator, and you know, have to we have to remind ourselves 
that uh, this is hardly the first major event that Rio has hosted. The World Cup was just two years ago, the Pan American Games, the World Youth Congress, um, you know, Rock and Rio. I mean, this is a, uh, Echo 92. This is a city. We can go back to the Ecumenical Congre Congress of 1955 or even, you know, some big events going back to the Centennial Exposition 1922 that somehow this is a city that can pull off major events, major world events, despite all of the problems that are part of the pulling the actual events off and the, um, you know, the, the legacy of them. So I think that that's important to recognize. And Cariocas are huge sports fans, or Brazilians are huge sports fans. Um, they, they're crazy about sports. And so a sporting event in a city that can and has uh, this, you know, almost calling for uh, putting on shows, uh, I think will combine to have an Olympics that will be successful, largely successful. You know, I'm sure there are going to be some things which don't work out correctly, but, you know, I imagine the same thing happened in London and Sochi and Beijing, etc. Um, I think that the bigger question, though, is at what cost and at what both direct cost but also the trade-offs. Uh, the direct costs are huge. I mean, the amounts of money, the amounts of waste um, that has gone along with those, invest those investments. Some of those investments will clearly be of enduring importance, um, some of the transportation investments. Um, the, um, I suppose, you know, for some of these sporting venues will be repurposed, but, you know, the, the World Cup is an example. You know, you have to certainly some of those stadiums which are really not used uh, but I think um, the trade-off costs are probably uh, much, so the story there is much more difficult to really uh, see in a positive light, or at least to be opt very optimistic. It's not that much of this investment would have taken place in other areas, but the fact that it is taking place in a context where there's an underinvestment or deinvestment in public health and education are two big areas for the city of Rio uh, and, and the state. Uh, environment, um, you know, the uh, uh, pollution of Guanabara Bay. I mean, this is just, you know, it's stunning. It's you, it's like the, the kind of a, it's mind-boggling that you know there could be so much progress and investment and enthusiasm and, and focus to build these um, Olympic sporting venues, but not to figure out how to. Uh, increased sewage treatment so that the waters this, that the Olympics themselves are using, much less after the Olympics, that the waters in this wonderful city are not, you know, just filthy, polluted with uh, human industrial waste and garbage. Um, that is really um, stunning, uh, and that those kinds of projects were in, in, incorporated. The health and the education, of course, the Olympics themselves are not those, you know, directly tied to health and education per se, but, you know, that the state of Rio in particular uh, has faced this huge crisis in, in public health and education uh, simultaneously in part because of long-term, well, because of need, but also long-term poor planning, mismanagement, and the drop of petroleum prices. At the time these Olympics are going on, it just creates an, a, a, um, a very glaring um, contrast about um, about uh, priorities is part of it, but execution and focus and where um, what where resources, but also more importantly, what citizenship 
looks like, you know, what role that the state in particular should have. And then even in areas where you find, you know, the ciclovia, so this Chimaya, wonderful uh, bike path that was constructed for the Olympics or in time for the Olympics, I guess. Uh, you know, it certainly would be a picture, postcard, perfect shot for any NBC Olympic coverage. Um, opened up, uh, what, three weeks ago? Um, though, you know, it had been under construction before that. And it collapsed. I mean, a portion of it collapsed to two weeks ago or two and a half weeks ago. You know, think, how could this have happened? Like, how could this brand new structure that clearly should have been done uh, in, you know, the highest standards in terms of engineering and execution, project management, how could it just be that it's, it's only been open a week and it collapses from a wave, which was a big wave, but it wasn't like, you know, the storm of the century kind of wave. And that is, you know, um, shocking. And, uh, you know, it's reflective of the of the mismanagement of resources, including those for specifically for the Olympics, the, you know, graft and corruption associated with contracting, <clears throat> the disregard for public safety and human life, uh, or the kind of generalization of risk uh, rather than its mitigation that is so endemic to public contracting and uh, in some ways to life. Not, I mean, that's a very overdramatic way <laughs> because for the most part, most cardiacas go about their day in a fairly normal, safe way. But it is a dangerous city as well. And uh, how you have public infrastructure, which should be built to the highest standards for safety, for instance, uh, are not, uh, is is really troubling uh, and um, demoralizing. And you certainly can see this in the past, in the historical past, and say, well, that was because it was a poor country, or it was, you know, ruled uh, by uh, oligarchs. Who knows? I mean, you can come up with a lot of a lot of arguments about why. But you know, why now at this moment, uh, particularly when uh, this global moment and uh, Rio itself is leading uh, a Brazilian aspiration to the full full member of the developed world in terms of its economic and social and political. Um, arrangements. Uh, and it's not. I mean, this is an indication that it doesn't. It's not. And that's very troubling uh, for, you know, it's both heartbreaking, uh, just emotionally heartbreaking, uh, but it's also very troubling for when you think about the kind of larger context in which the uh, underutilization of capacity or the suppression of human capacity and the city's capacity because of um, bad execution, cynicism, Corruption uh, is, is, is hard to take. And I think that's also a very excellent summary of um, the ways in which uh, issues around the Olympics have uh, taken on a, a very political form and that some of the underlying issues that you talked about um, really underscore uh, some of the dissatisfaction that um, uh, cariocas as well as other Brazilians have with their government. Um, so I wonder if you could perhaps give us a sense of um, the way that you think uh, the, the the tension right now regarding um, Dilma and others um, might be resolved, uh, if it might ultimately end with uh, impeachment, or if there might be some other political resolution that might come about. 
Well, I mean, specific for Virgil, for President Husef, um which is not a, a certainly not a Rio city problem or even a Rio state problem. It's a national problem. Though there is a, it's interesting to see that you know some of the major players are from the state of Rio. Eduardo Cunha, the, the now somewhat suspended uh, Speaker of the House, uh, President Husef's main adversary, is from the state of Rio. Uh, <clears throat> Bolsonaro, right now, one of the kind of major um, notorious figures uh, of the far right, is also from the state of Rio. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I, given what I read in the paper and see, I, I think that the, the Jilma's uh, political fate is um, she has very very slim chances uh, of of not being uh, removed uh, or they have her power suspended very soon. The vote is today or tomorrow. Um, it's possible she'll be able to successfully defend herself in the full trial in the in the Senate, though I think that that's difficult in part because of this more broad based. Um, collapse of public support, uh, including from those in her own party, uh, but also in part uh, her political skills are just um, maybe she was the right person at the wrong time, uh, but in a period of crisis, political and economic crisis, she has not proven to be very um, skillful or adept at managing you know, a difficult economic situation and a hostile political situation, but one in which uh, in a multi-party system, possibly, you know, she were better uh, at able to to navigate that would maybe not lead toward impeachment. Not necessarily that she'd be as successful uh, as she would like, but certainly to impeachment. So uh, it's quite possible, you know, but her um, the vice president, Tamer, um doesn't really seem to have a strong political place uh, or program. And so it's not as if there is a in the wings an alternative faction or group with a vision. I mean, there are a lot of language about anti-corruption, and you'll find this in, you know, important in in um, in Rio City, uh, and you'll among the middle classes and elites. Uh, but you'll also find, you know, fear and anxiety about the end, uh, the curtailment of social services and social programs. Uh, again, in Rio, among those people who are most better beneficiaries of them, people who see Bolsa Familia, you know, Casa Mia Vida, these other social service programs, but also everyday people who don't necessarily benefit from those um, maids, for instance, who uh, are domestics who might um, find that some of the gains made under the uh, new domestic, uh, domestic um, workers' laws, protection laws, would be eroded um, without the defense of um, the PT and um, in the Ministry of Labor, uh, uh, so you know those are those are are, are there. Right? You know Rio's in this particular city, I mean, in particular juncture of being the host city for the Olympics, and so there's some focus of trying to not not be so entangled in the events in Brasilia, uh, in part because of this international gaze slash pressure to, to perform uh, for the Olympics. Rio State, more broadly, uh, is in this very serious economic crisis because of the collapse of oil and kind of a, a, a political development project, which was very tied to, to petroleum uh, revenues, and that those have not come to be recently. 
So those, you know, are it's a very difficult conjuncture. I, I historically and even today, I would say that uh, Rio becomes the the um, the the, uh, the proxy for all of Brazil. So though it is autonomous, it's just, you know has its own particular dynamic. It becomes uh, this what takes place in Rio is a proxy for all of Brazil, and certainly in the international imaginary. Um, but also Rio itself, with its you know very strong media, in particular media industries, historically uh, also economic power, which is not nearly as strong as it used to be historically. Um, for internationally, you know, so you, you know, just use you know from a very shorthand way these economist um, covers, you know, first Brazil taking off, and you know what is the what is Brazil taking off? It's the image of Christ the Redeemer and this rocket taking off. And then, you know, then something's going wrong, and again, it's Christ the Redeemer, but it's a rocket, and it's like spiraling down and crashing. Uh, and then the most recent one with the Christ the Redeemer again holding up an SOS. So these are these are stories in the, in the Economist, and this is one example of trying to discuss all of the country, but it becomes a kind of shorthand about an iconic image of the country, which is a carioca image, Christ the Redeemer on Corcovado. And I think that that is one of the 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 real um, the power that Rio has to set an, an, an agenda, a, a language for all of Brazil, but also a burden. That all kind of being said, though, that you know this particular moment of political crisis also, in terms of the image, uh, is one that plays out um, in a kind of spectacle way uh, in the streets of Rio and certainly in the streets of Sao Paulo, but also in Brasilia. And Brasilia being the capital uh, you know, has its own particular place for this right now, both outside the, the, the capital uh, chambers, uh, but also within those chambers themselves. Which is, which you know, is a reflective for Rio. It's just a, it's a different moment. It's no longer the capital. When we look back to other moments of political crisis, you know, Vargas's well, the events that led to Vargas's suicide in '54, the coup against Vargas in 1945, the revolution in 1930, um, the proclamation of the republic uh, 1889. Uh, those are all Rio events. They're na they're national in scope but they're real events because of Rio being the capital, and that's where both the seat of government is, but also the head of state. Uh, and that's not the case right now. And um, so that you know changes the, the dynamic. But nonetheless, I still think that it's important to recognize that when we talk and we see this imagery about contemporary crisis in Brazil, you know, we're not seeing most of Brazil. We're seeing images from a select number of places, and Rio is usually one of the top three of those places. And in regards to um, Rio uh, and being uh, the focus for a particular reader, um, I know a number have been published on uh, countries throughout Latin America. There's a Brazil reader um, that's been done, another on Chile and Argentina. Uh, but I believe this is the first reader that has been um, published on a specific city. Uh, so I wonder if you had the opportunity to um, publish a second reader on another city um, in Latin America, uh, which city do you think would um, be that focus? Well, Duke University Press um, 
you know, has been very, very successful with these country readers, as they're called. And so um, they are, you know, hoping or the intent is to develop out um, city readers as well to go, you know, to be um, the companion. Uh, it tur when we began this project, several others were uh, already in, in production. I believe they still are, but um, in part because of the timing of the Olympics and in part just because we were able to do it, uh, we got ours to out. Uh, but certainly I would agree that some of the other ones that are in development, Buenos Aires, Lima, Mexico City, Havana, are all cities very, very worthy of readers. Um, and I would, you know, I look forward to reading those uh, myself. The challenge for me personally uh, for doing taking any of those on is that uh, I think to really do this well, um, one has to be bicultural, bilingual, uh, and uh, have spent a lot of time uh, in a city to <clears throat> get a sense of just space, uh, neighborhoods, distance, um, to be able to to try to to capture that. So, you know, though I have lived in Buenos Aires for I don't know five months or so, doing some research, uh, I don't know if I could do it. Um, uh, because I don't have the, the I, I would have to approach it in a very academic kind of way and not necessarily also connecting to some of the both personal but also the kind of social emotive uh, parts of that. I think instead someone who's either Porteño, who then happens also to be able to think about how an uh, English language audience would want to understand Buenos Aires, or a, a North American uh, or English language person who has spent a lot of time in Buenos Aires would be better positioned. And I would say the same thing for places like Havana, Mexico City, Lima, Cusco, in Brazil, Sao Paulo, um, Salvador, uh, you know, places. I, um, but I think that this model could certainly be used for other kinds of, uh, of cities. And I live in Washington, D.C. right now, and I've lived here for 20-some years. And I think, you know, it would take me – it would take a, lot, a fair amount of work, but I think I could do something uh, in, for uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, in a way that would be faithful, at least uh, respectful, of the endeavor to try to capture um, a city that is, again, very complex and multiplicitous. So, um, but again, I think that the most important thing is that, um, you know, people are doing this with a lot of passion and experience. And um, I've had the opportunity to do this for Rio, <laughs> and I hope that others were able to do it from other, for some other cities. And we certainly look forward to uh, additional readers for other cities if those things are in the works. Um, and. We've certainly taken up uh, a lot of your time today, Dr. Williams. So uh, with respect to new projects, I wonder if you could just um, close out the interview for us by perhaps talking about um, a current project uh, that you might be working on or perhaps one you've finished or one that you hope to start in the immediate future. Yeah, so uh, I should say, you know, one uh, extension to the Rear Reader uh, right now, which is kind of my, my project of so talking about this book and this Olympic moment in the city, is that I, uh, I signed up for Twitter. And so I'm tweeting um, pretty much every day at least one or two tweets about Rio and some components. So sometimes I'm retweeting contemporary news. And with the crisis in Brazil, there's certainly lots uh, to do there. But uh, sometimes I also pull things out that are directly associated with the reader. 
other things inspired by the reader. Another just random. I found this, you know, there was this yogi uh, in the early 60s who predicted that Rio was going to be destroyed in a tidal wave, a tsunami. I, you know, I posted this. Uh, you know, it's it just, uh, it, it, it actually ex- expands out the opportunities to do the reader, moving this into social media without having to go through all the work of finding the documents, translating them, you know, getting them ready, translating them, getting the rights, uh, because, you know, since I'm just linking to them, it's not so much a problem. Um, and so I, I really look forward to that, and I've noticed that out of that I've, I've been able to build up a kind of parallel real reader in social media, uh, which is interesting, and it adds extends some of the topics there um, directly, and others have added some new ones. So I, I really look at the real reader as something that's continued to grow and take on a life. Um, and so you know, follow me on Twitter, my full name, Daryl Williams, uh, or the hashtag Rio Reader, and you can see a little bit more uh, of that. In terms of my own scholarship, I'm, I'm trying to very uh, diligently to finish a monograph, a book, a scholarly book, uh, which looks um, at the experience of freedom in 19th century Brazilian slave society, and particularly about Rio, principally, and this group of Africans um, who were illegally enslaved uh, and then liberated uh, and during the suppression of the trade. So they were on ships that were captured by British, sometimes Brazilian, but mainly British uh, cruisers in between the 1830s, uh, 1850s, and um, liberated uh, because they had been illegally uh, trafficked. And so it's this experience that they, they have of being uh, illegally enslaved, but then freed, but in Brazil. Uh, in, a, in the world's uh, largest and most enduring slave society, and particularly in Rio, one of the largest slave cities ever in the Americas. And so um, they have a very particular kind of experience, but one that is unique to this group. Called, they're called free Africans or liberated Africans. Emancipados uh, is another term. Uh, but at the same time, it's also one that's shared with many, the many, many more Africans who were illegally enslaved and never rescued. And those Africans people of African descent uh, born into Brazil, born into slavery in Brazil. And so kind of looks at their experiences as, as, as blacks, um, but in this kind of variety of blacks and blackness, uh, and um, using a lot of documentation um, that is, um, has been suitable for some digital humanities projects because a lot of their, the, the information about them comes from these lists or the registers taken when the ships are seized and rescued and the liberated Africans are liberated, they're given names, um, and then later they're liberated again uh, in the 1850s and 60s, and so some lists that have been suitable for some digital humanities work that I've done at Stanford and more recently at Michigan State uh, University. Uh, but also there's the incredible people, human stories in there, um, mainly told through these petitions that these various Africans wrote for all kinds of things, but particularly for their freedom um, one of those stories is in the Rio Reader. There's a Maria Angola, also goes by Maria Hebola, who was uh, <clears throat> illegally enslaved, arrives in Brazil. It's not exactly clear, but 1840, around 1840, and um, in the early 1850s, she's uh, she makes lodges this complaint with the British consul that her son, Eugenio, three-year-old son, had been illegally um, enslaved. She herself had been illegally enslaved originally, but she had been liberated, and she had been working under the kind of forced apprenticeship of this Portuguese uh, guy. And, uh, but this Portuguese guy, there was a scheme, had uh, tried to uh, baptize uh, Maria's son as a slave and treat him as a slave. And so she's compl- 
complaining about this, and so you get to her voice. She, she goes to the, the British consul and she registers this complaint. Um, and then you see some responses there. So that's a that's an ex- kind of a story, a human, very human story, you know, about a mother and a child. They're trying to protect her, her child and to save her child from enslavement. A woman who knew enslavement herself, uh, but who was free, had free, been freed. And um, so there are, you know, hundreds of stories like that from different kinds of documents. I'm trying to make a kind of larger argument about not just the experience that these Africans have, but also what that experience and what their particular agency means for understanding freedom as a concept, liberty as a concept, and eventually also as a legal practice. Uh, in Brazil um, from the 1830s up through the 1860s, uh, leading up to the eve of the moment when the free woman laws passed in which, from a legal perspective, um, the Brazil um, becomes a slave society, which eventually will end slavery eventually, <laughs> after many generations, or many, many years, many decades. Um, but look at that period prior to that and how these free Africans uh, worked uh, and experienced uh, freedom and slavery. Uh, and so that will be a book um, that I'm hopefully going to be finishing in about the next uh, year, well, less than that, uh, that I've been working on for quite some time. And that's tied into, obviously, some things which I've touched on the real reader, but also tied to my more recent uh, research, which moved from the originally from the 20th century uh, to the 19th and Brazilian 19th century slavery, uh, slave society is just a you know, large and fascinating, complex, uh, very interesting historical um, topic uh, that um, on its own terms would also, to, you know, to put Brazil in dialogue with the United States and, and Cuba and Haiti and the Americas and then the broader Atlantic, diaspora, Atlantic African diaspora as well. It certainly does sound like a, a very fascinating project, um, and I think we certainly wish you the best uh, in terms of um, completing it. Um, and we look forward to to reading. <laughs> the, I know it sounds a little a little bit on on the morbid side, but uh, we certainly do um, uh, wish you the best uh, for that. And we look forward to reading the book um, when it's when it's published. Thank you, thank you. It's been you no, know, it, it's, it's it's a project which. Uh, it's taken some time, um, but it has some, you know, interesting. Um, it will, I mean, and it, it will be a historical monograph on its own terms. But I think, particularly with the digital humanities components to this, um, somewhat maybe like the real reader, is also there going to be some components of this that are going to exist outside of a traditional book format. So in these digital humanities ones, uh, the Liberated Africans Project is what it's called at, at Michigan State, and uh, Broken Paths of Freedom at Stanford University. Are you know ways in which scholarship not just can just exist outside of books, you know the form of the book, but also it can exist in different ways, sometimes more interactive, and also ways that provides a user, uh, a reader, in um, some of the raw materials. So you'll find in these both of these digital humanities projects the data set, um, and that the data set can be manipulated in ways that I don't necessarily. Find interest, not that I don't find interesting, it's just that I'm, it's not my particular research agenda. And I think that this, um, again, is a way that we're in a moment right now where it's important not just to share our research and our arguments and our findings, but also to share, we have the capacity to do this in part through 
through a, uh, digital technologies uh, to share the kind of raw data and allow other people in a sometimes guided way, but sometimes also you figured out on your own uh, what um, might be made of historical materials and um, the historical experiences that are captured in those materials. Oh, fantastic. Well, Dr. Daryl Williams uh, is an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland. He is one of the editors for the Rio de Janeiro Reader, and he is also the author of Culture Wars in Brazil, the First Vargas Regime, from 1930 to 1945, which is also published by Duke University Press. Uh, Dr. Williams, uh, thank you once again for taking the time to speak with us. Keith, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Once again, this has been Keith Simmons, host of New Books in Latin American Studies for the New Books Network. Until next time.